Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 316 with Eduardo Brasenio. We've heard a couple times how a growth mindset makes a world of difference. And so we've got one of the top, top experts in the field of growth mindsets laying it out for us. They all learn one, the tremendous impact of having a growth versus a fixed mindset. Two, common misconceptions about improving your skills. And three, best practices for operating at peak performance. So if you'd like to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced here, you'll find that on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F316. And while at awesomeatyourjob.com, I encourage you to check out some of our nifty stuff. One nifty thing we got is the 10 Days to Winning at Work email course. Very quick, bite-sized, 10 messages spread out over 10 days. You'll learn the same tactics I teach clients to slash waste out of the work week. About 80 plus minutes per person per week. You can use some of that time for deliberate practice, something we'll talk about with Eduardo here, or anything else you want. It's over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now, here is Eduardo's story. He is the co-founder and CEO of Mindset Works, the leading provider of growth mindset training services and programs. He started in 2007 with Carol Dweck and others to help organizations develop learning-oriented cultures and systems. Eduardo regularly speaks at conferences and trainings for professionals and leaders. His TEDx talks have been viewed by millions of people. He studied engineering, business, and education at Penn and Stanford, but most importantly, he continues to enjoy lifelong learning every day. Big thanks to Eduardo for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Eduardo. Eduardo, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm so excited to dig into some of your wisdom here. And first, you you shared something that's near and dear to my heart. You said you consider yourself a master spreadsheet ninja. Tell us how that came to be and, and maybe some of your favorite Excel moves. <laughs> Sure, happy to share that. So, why is that near uh, your heart? I'm sure your uh, your listeners would love to hear that about you as well. Also, <laughs> well, you know, in, in strategy consulting at Bain, I, I did plenty of Excel spreadsheets and and really enjoyed learning the sort of ninja tricks in terms of all the the shortcuts. So it's kind of like a a little bit of a, a badge of honor if you never have to touch the mouse <laughs> with using yeah. all of the shortcut keys. And and one time I remember I, I met another consultant at a, a. T. Carney. At a party, and so it was funny. Uh, her name was Kristen. Shout out! And and she said she was a consultant. I said, "So, what's your favorite Excel shortcut?" And, and, you know, kind of like, like <laughs> joking flirtatiously. And we ended up dating for almost a year. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, I have a similar story. Uh, it, I did. Uh, I studied finance in undergrad, and the two biggest industries that people would go into are either consulting, as you did, or investment banking. I went into investment banking, and similar thing. It was really important to become really fast with a spreadsheet because we would spend lots of all nighters, you know, in the office, or you know, we would go home and sleep for like three hours or less. So being fast was really important, and so I also learned a lot of the you know the shortcut keys and a lot of very simple things like. For me, the control down arrow or, you know, ways to navigate the spreadsheet is important. But when I was working in investment banking, sometimes I would I would create macros. I, I taught myself how to program macros. And sometimes I would have to leave my computer on for like 30 minutes just, just 
you would see the screen doing all kinds of things. So people would walk into my office and see the computer working by itself. And it was kind of weird. But, but yeah, it was really helpful for me. Uh, but for me, the biggest tip uh, for Excel, and I think applies for other programs also, that I think is helpful and, and I see some people not doing, and it's been helpful to me, is starting with an already formatted document uh, rather than kind of starting with an unformatting document and then needing to format it later. Uh, kind of starting with, with, a, with a template that's already kind of with the, the visuals that I like uh, saves me a lot of time. Oh, that is good, yes. I think my favorite shortcut combination was control shift eight or control asterisk, which would highlight a contiguous block of cells, which immediately preceded me pushing alt DPP for make pivot table. And ever since I switched to a Mac, it's like, it's just not the same. <laughs> yeah. I have a friend who the only reason he doesn't switch to Mac is because of Excel and the shortcut keys. I didn't know that shortcut key though. So, uh, thank you for teaching that because what oh, I would have done okay. is control up left arrow shift right left. So that's a lot longer than just control shift F8. So thank you for for teaching me that. Oh, anytime. Yes. Well, it sounds like you have really adopted a growth mindset when it comes to learning Excel <laughs> and, and all matters. So could you orient us a little bit? You're the co-founder and CEO of Mindset Works. What's the story behind the company and Carol Dweck and, and how it got to be and what you're doing now? Sure. And so our mission is to help create a more learning-oriented world. And the way the company got started was through the research of one of the co-founders whom you mentioned, Carol Dweck and also another colleague of hers, Lisa Blackwell. So Carol has been doing research for decades on psychology and on what leads people to react differently to challenges um, and, and to mistakes. And what she discovered is that people tend to see abilities or human qualities in one of two different ways or somewhere in the middle. Uh, but uh, she has now, she, she used to call that incremental theory of intelligence and entity theory of intelligence. Right now, uh, she has coined the term growth mindset and fixed mindset, which has you know, taken off. And what it means is when we see human qualities or abilities as uh, fixed, as things that people are either good at or not good at, and you can't do anything about it, uh, that's what we call a fixed mindset. And when we see it as malleable, as changeable, as things that we can develop, that's what we call a growth mindset. And that has a lot of psychological implications about how we think, what we pay attention to, what goals we set for ourselves, uh, how we react to challenges, how we speak with each other. And so that our, our work is about helping people understand these two mindsets and how we're thinking, you know, what our own self-awareness is, and then how we build growth mindsets and learning orientation in ourselves and in our environments, like in our work environments or in our school environments. Uh, so the way that the company started is uh, Carol has had done a lot of research, and then she started working with Lisa on could we teach a growth mindset uh, to kids, to kids in middle school is where they started. And uh, so they, they created different studies to see whether if you taught kids that the brain is malleable and it can change, it can become stronger and be able to think better whether that would have a difference in their motivation and in their grades. And they found that it did. And so they, they started wanting to, to create products and services for schools to be able to foster a growth mindset in their students and their teachers and in their cultures. And they, they started looking for somebody with a business background to co-found a company with. 
Uh, so I was introduced to them, and we started Mindset Works ten years ago. So that's that's how we got started. Oh, that's great. Today we 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 serve schools, but we also serve companies to help them build more learn, learning oriented cultures. Okay, understood. Well, so could you maybe unpack a little bit more the the distinction in terms of what it looks, sounds, feels like when you're operating in a, a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset? Yeah. So first of all, uh, so, so here's an example of how this research is done. I think is kind of interesting. In this particular set of research studies, what the researchers did is they asked people through a simple survey, people of different ages, whether they thought that people could become smarter or whether they thought that some people were smart or not smart, and that was that. And what they were trying to assess is whether people were in a growth mindset or in a fixed mindset about intelligence, whether they thought intelligence was something people either had or didn't, or whether people could become smarter. And then uh, they put uh, these, these people into a brain scan machine, a functional MRI machine, that looked at their brain activity while they were solving problems. And so these people were actually solving problems inside of the fMRI machine while researchers were imaging their brain. And what they found is that the people who thought that um, intelligence was fixed, that people couldn't become smarter, they, their brain was most attentive when they were getting information about whether they got the problems right or wrong. But the brain was not paying much attention or doing much thinking when they were getting information about what mistakes they made. And that was really interesting because the people who thought they could become smarter, their brain was most active and paying the most attention when they were getting information about what mistakes they made. So they were most interested in, okay, what did I do wrong? What can I learn from this? And then as a result of that, those people solved problems more effectively and more successfully for the subsequent problems. So they actually learned something useful. They became better at problem-solving and the difference between these two groups is one of them thought that intelligence was fixed, and the other one thought that intelligence was malleable. Uh, so that's one example of how this research is done. And through, through research like that, researchers have, have realized that people in a fixed mindset tend to have a goal of looking smart and talented in front of other people. So they're saying, okay, if people are either smart or not or talented or not, I don't want to be in the smart and talented category. I want people to see me that way. And so the way they go about doing that is by doing the things that they're already very comfortable with, that they do very well, quickly, perfectly, without mistakes, without effort. And they keep doing that over and over again uh, versus the people in the growth mindset, they can become bored if they're not being challenged. If they're doing the same thing over and over again, they can become bored and unmotivated because what they want to do is do something that where they're going to learn from and they can get better at. So that's a different goal. They see effort in a different way. So people in a fixed mindset tend to see effort as a negative thing, something that only people with low ability need to put effort into things. People with high ability don't need to put effort into things. And so as a result of that, when, they're, when they need to put effort into something, it makes them feel badly about themselves. You know, It makes them feel incapable. Versus people in a growth mindset understand the best people you know, in their field who become the most skilled they work really hard to get there, and they continue to work hard to get even better. So the you know Olympic gold medalists, they continue to, even though they're the best in the world, they continue to work really hard to get even better. And they see effort as something that's good, something that we can all benefit from. So the people in a fixed mindset avoid challenges versus seeking challenges for those in a growth mindset. When we make mistakes or experience failure or setback, 
if we're in a fixed mindset, we interpret that as saying, okay, this means that I don't have the necessary ability. And so I'm going to go do something else. This is not for me. I'm not meant to do this. And so they give up. There's less resilience. Versus people in a growth mindset understand that if we're working on what we haven't mastered yet, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to have setbacks. That's part of the learning process. We're going to learn from that. We're going to try different strategies. We're going to ask for help. We're going to look for resources. So they're a lot more resilient as a result of that. Uh, when we receive feedback, we react differently. We, if we're in a fixed mindset, we say, we act defensively, right? We say, this person doesn't know what they're talking about or uh, they're just trying to hurt me. Versus if we're, a, if we're in a growth mindset, we listen. We say, what is this person saying? Can I learn from this? Is there some truth to this that I can learn from about what they think and what, how I can get better? When other people succeed, you know, we see it as a threat versus an opportunity. There are other differences between a growth and a fixed mindset that affect how much we improve and our performance and also how we interact with each other, our relationships, mm-hmm. for some examples. Well, thank you for laying that out there. And, and it's so intriguing when I was checking out your TEDx talks. Uh, um, you mentioned that brain scan piece about how we're, we're most engaged when we see you know, how we're doing if you're in a, in a fixed mindset. That was a little bit of an alarm mm-hmm. for me because mm-hmm. I was, well, you know, I'm familiar with this stuff a little bit and I thought, uh-oh, you know, growth mindset's where you want to be. And, and I find that mm-hmm. indeed, like, let's say I, I'm sending out an email to, to all of the subscribers and, and I'm so yeah. darn curious. I'll click refresh, 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 you know, what's the output rate? What's the click rate? How did I do? You know, am I doing good? Yeah. You know, at sending these emails or, yeah. or, or not so much. And, and so it's intriguing that I suppose even maybe how you approach it could tell you something is it's like, I want to hear how well I did primarily in order to feel awesome about how great I am or because I, I'm using that as an indicator a piece of, of, of feedback information to to point me to to doing better. So I, I think it's intriguing how even how you receive the information about your performance mm-hmm. is is telling of what is going to to happen to you in terms of your growth and learning. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And in a growth mindset, it doesn't mean we're not paying attention to the scores or to our performance. The brain is also active for people in a growth mindset at that time. It is also active because it's relevant information, right? Whether what we did work or didn't work is useful. We learn from that also, especially if, if we got the wrong answer. But even if we got the right answer, we know that what we did worked. Also, when we have a great performance, when we do something really well, that's motivating. And sometimes it gives us the motivation to continue to improve, right? To, to continue to experience that in the future at, at greater levels. So it's not like in a growth mindset, we're not we don't care about performance or, or those outcome me- metrics, but we're more aware of the process and how kind of what the difference is between working to improve versus working to perform and that we need to do both of those things in order to, to, to do things and have you know, positive effects in the world. Understood. And it, it's been really encouraging as well as, as I think about, it, it kind of changes the way you in a way see everything in terms of, of daily interactions. Like, so I recently bought a home and so I'm a homeowner and there's, I'm, there's, I'm not super handy. Oh, that sounded like a fixed mindset uh, <laughs> sentence, eh? But I have not yet, you know, developed a lot of those skills. And I've been so encouraged as I've, yeah. I've seen contractors and others actually crack open the instruction manual for the things. It's like, oh, even this person knows <laughs> all about you know how to install a reverse osmosis machine 
or a TV mount or, or whatever it may be are actively learning, getting better. And it's not like looking at the instructions is something for losers or, or those who don't really know what they're doing. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and it, what you say resonates because I, I grew up in Venezuela in an apartment building where all the walls are cement and people, homeowners are not usually like working to improve their home. Uh, that's not as common, like that never happened in my home. And so I'm also somebody who didn't learn any of that stuff. And, and living in the U.S., I've learned a lot more of it. But it's, what you're saying is interesting that it, it for me, it, it changed, thinking about this stuff changes what we perceive. Like you're perceiving that person looking at the manual and you're, you're noticing it and then you're interpreting it in certain ways. And so this, all of these kind of thinking and discussing that we're talking about uh, helps us kind of change, change our perceptions and our interpretations of the world. Mm-hmm. Well, now, if you find yourself in, in a growth, I'm sorry, in a fixed mindset, you know, can that be changed either in terms of internally and how you're, you're thinking and, and, and working on your own thoughts or, or externally? How is that in and of itself malleable? Yeah, so that's, that's great. Uh, mindset can definitely be changed. It, there's a lot of research that manipulates mindset, and uh, and that is definitely something that it, it can be changed and it's what our work is about. And I would say that a really important kind of early step is, is rather than try to change it too quickly almost, is to just kind of sit with our fixed on our in our fixed mindset and just notice it and just acknowledge it and become more self aware and kind of try to catch ourselves when we are in a fixed mindset and how it's affecting us, how it is affecting the way we think and what we do. Because then we we use that opportunity to learn more about mindsets and to really develop a deeper understanding of why they matter, you know, how they're affecting us, and then we become more motivated to take on the journey. Uh, to shift our mindset. Absolutely. Well, and I also got a kick out of some of the research associated with the, the children doing puzzles and the, the external encouragement. Can you share that story? Yeah, for sure. So um, one of the kind of surprising things about this research is that we've discovered that praise that we often, a society we tend to see as positive, can have really negative unintended consequences. So in this particular set of studies, children of about kind of fifth grade were asked to work on a set of puzzles. They're kind of nonverbal IQ tests, they're puzzles. And so they work on them. They're about a, an appropriate level of difficulty for them. And then after they, they work on them, they were randomly split to receive one of two different types of praise. One type of praise is what we call process praise. Uh, so they were told, wow, that's a really good score. You must have worked really hard. Uh, and the other half were told intelligence praise. They were told, wow, that's a really good score. You must be really, really smart. And it turns out that for the students who heard, you must be really smart, that the next thing that happened in the study is the, the children were asked, okay, now we're going to do a second set of puzzles. Do you want to do an easy one or a hard one? And it turned out that more than 90% of the students who were praised for working hard who heard, wow, you must be so smart, you must have worked really hard. More than 90% of them wanted to do the hard set of puzzles, but less than half of the ones who heard, you must be so smart, uh, chose to do the hard set of puzzles. The majority wanted to do the easy set of puzzles. And so we, we tell kids, you're so smart, and we do it with our best intentions, and they feel good about themselves in the short term because they're saying, wow, I am smart. But the deeper message that we're communicating 
is that people are either smart or not smart, and what, that's why they succeed, and that's why allows them to be effective and to solve problems. And so then what they want after that is to feel smart and to have people think that they're smart, and they know that the way to do that is to do the things perfectly and without mistakes. That's what, think, well, that's what they end up thinking, that will, will let people know that they're smart. So they don't want to take on you know, um, uh, challenges after that. In the, in the same study, what the children were then told was, okay, we're going to do a second set of puzzles. It's going to be hard, but we're going to learn from them. And so they all did that puzzle. And then they did a third set of puzzles that was of equal difficulty to the first one. Because the researchers were trying to figure out, would this different sentence that the children heard affect their performance between the first set of puzzles and the third set of puzzles? which were equivalent. And it turned out the students who heard, you must be so smart, actually performed worse in the third set of puzzles than they had originally. So their performance went down, and the children who heard, you must have worked really hard, uh, their performance went up. They learned something useful about problem solving when they were working on those hard problems, and they were able to become better problem solvers in the third set of puzzles. Versus the first group, was worried about what this person was thinking about them. They were kind of struggling in that second set, so they were thinking, oh, I must not be so smart after all, and that actually kind of affected their performance. So lots of kind of power to how we speak with children. And so instead of speaking about them being, for example, smart or natural leaders or natural anything, uh, what we can do instead is is focus on their behaviors, their choices, their strategies, uh, ask them questions for them to reflect and share their experiences. Uh, focus on what they can control and and what they can do, as opposed to like labels of what they are and aren't. Oh, lovely! Thank you. Well, so I also want to get your take because we, we chatted with uh, the CEO of Corn Ferry, uh, Gary Bernison, earlier. Yeah, two seventy three, I think, and he shared that they've done all sorts of research associated with competencies and which ones are, are, are relatively easier or harder to develop. And, and I asked him to get a little bit of a, a sense of, of the scale for how much easier, how much harder. And, and he said that it was something on the order of 200 times harder to learn and, and grow and improve on the most challenging to grow competencies than the easiest competencies. And so I would just like to get your take, since you're looking all about people learning and growing and developing and anything, you know, how do you yeah. wrestle with, with, with that one when it comes to certain things being way harder than others to master? Well, that's really interesting. Uh, and I haven't listened to that episode, and I will. So thank you for pointing me to it. Um, and so I, I look forward to learning about that. I'm not familiar with that research. Uh, but a couple of things that, that come to mind. First of all, uh, in terms of, kind of what's hard or easy to learn, it tends to be easier to learn something when we are novices. Uh, we can learn faster and with not as advanced learning strategies as when we are experts, right? So if you're in the top 10 tennis players in the world, it takes a lot of hard work to improve a little bit. Uh, and yet that's really important at that level to, to keep, keep on that journey. So that's one thing. Another thing is that there are domains where there's a lot of knowledge about how people can improve, and there are domains where that's a lot fuzzier. So, for example, in chess or in ballet or classical music, there are there are coaches or teachers who have done this for a long time and have 
learn from other coaches and, and there's very established practices about the best techniques that each kind of learner needs at any level. Uh, and then there's lots of fields where it, there's, it's a lot less of a science. So it seems to me that in those fields where we know more about how people improve in that field, it seems uh, it would be easier for somebody working with a great coach to improve than in other fields. Like, you know, in medicine, if you think about medicine 200 years ago, George Washington died because they bled him, you know, and they thought that was a good thing. So to improve as a doctor then, you know, you would you would learn from a doctor who would teach you how to you know how to kill people. Like so, like people didn't know how to get better as a doctor, and now we know a lot more about that. As an example. Also, there's a lot of things that people care about and want to get better at that are not skills. So if, you know, if you ask a lot of people, what do you want to get better at? Uh, some people will answer, well, I want to become famous or I want to become rich. And the correlation between being famous or rich and being skilled or an expert at something is is very very weak uh, versus <laughs> there are things that um there are things that are more skill based so that's that's uh and not to say i mean they're very still like you know warren buffett is an incredible investor and he's so skilled at it so i'm not saying that there's no correlation but um so but but people who study the development of expertise don't study things like being famous or rich uh because it's, it's not it's not well correlated so those are some of the things that come to my mind. Uh, the other thing that I would say is that it's not that in a growth mindset we should get good at everything. Like you gave the example of becoming handy as an example. Um, you can be in a growth mindset about about the ability to be handy, meaning that if you took on that journey and you made the time to to learn and to practice, you believe you could get better at that. But yet you could make the choice of saying. I'm not going to spend all this time learning to be handy because there's so, only so much time in the day. Here's where I want to focus my time. Here are my priorities. And I can't get great at everything. So even though I could become great at anything, uh, I'm going to, to choose my battles and I'm going to become great at these things. And, and as part of that thinking process, we can think about how much, you know, how much work and resources would it take for me to, to get better at something. And that can be part of the equation. What are my goals? What, I want, I don't, what do I want out of life? What do I want in my work? And all of that goes into that equation of where do I put my effort in terms of improvement? That's good. Well, you talk about the, the lack of correlation between fame and skills. <laughs> I, I, was, I was just <laughs> thinking about uh, you know, some certain, I guess, very popular music <laughs> it doesn't isn't very <laughs> right. skillful you know in in, in yeah. putting it together so that's sort of a we're yeah. gonna chuckle a bit there so understood thank you that that's that's really cool so then what are some of your your perspectives when it comes to if we do want to get better at, at some things you know what are are the top things we should do in order to fast track that that learning growth development well i think so first of all we we tend to have this kind of vague notion that the way to get better at something is to work hard and to spend a lot of time doing it. And that is, I think, kind of a misconception. Uh, like, for example, if you, uh, if you look at studies of chess, uh, of the serious chess players, the more time they spend playing games of chess, the worse they are as chess players and the lower their ranking as chess players. So the more time they spend playing games of chess, the lower the ranking. 
And the reason is when we're playing a game of chess, we are performing. We are trying to do things as best as we can. We're trying to minimize mistakes. We're trying to, uh, to, to be, win the game versus, and that's a different activity than an improvement-oriented activity. So, for example, in, in chess, an example of that would be to take a chess board position that happened in a game between grandmasters and picking what, what move we would make. And then going back to what the grandmaster made and saying, okay, why did they make this move instead of the move that I chose? And you might spend like 30 minutes trying to figure that out. And that activity is a very different activity than just playing a game of chess. So if we think about playing tennis or golf, if we, can, if we think that the way to improve at those things is to go out and play tennis or play golf, what usually happens is we, we, got better, we get better at the beginning when we're novices because we're so bad, like any, anything we do will make us better. Uh, but then we stagnate and we don't, we don't, we don't continue getting better if, if all we're doing is playing games. Uh, instead, what we need to do to improve in those things is to usually work with a coach and have them observe us and have them give us feedback on what to work on. And then we can kind of narrow down and say, okay, you know, I'm having trouble with my top spin serve, so that's what I'm going to work on right now. And you, you do the top spin serve, and then you're working on that and getting feedback from where the ball goes and adjusting your movement, uh, what, what Anders Ericsson calls deliberate practice, which is being clear about what sub-skill we're working on, uh, kind of having repetition and feedback from what we're doing at a, at a high challenge level. And it's something that we do focusing 100% of the time or 100% of our kind of attention uh, on that high level of challenge and that activity, ideally with the help of a coach. So those are examples of something, an activity that's improvement-related versus an improvement that is performance-related. And what often happens at work is that we are so busy, we have many, so many things to do, that we spend all of our time just performing, just executing, just trying to get the job done, focusing on trying to minimize mistakes, and that if we are not spending any time in what we call the learning zone, being deliberate about improvement, uh, then it leads to stagnation and we don't improve further. So the way to improve, uh, and, and it's kind of the specific activities vary by what it is that you're trying to improve, but I think what's, what's common is a, kind of being clear about what you want to improve. So are each of us clear on what it is that we want to get better at? Perhaps we could consider that doing that with our teams. Like, is, is each team clear on what we're trying to improve? And then how we're, how we're going to go about improving that. And in the, in the workplace, it can include things like, first, like, you know, listening from, from people who have thought a lot about this stuff and done research, like, you know, your, your listeners in this podcast have learned a lot from lots of uh, people with perspectives who have looked at different parts of improvement. So, so that's an example of that. Experimenting, right? Trying different things, not just doing not just doing the same thing we did yesterday, today, but doing something different and learning from that. Uh, consulting with colleagues, asking for feedback, reflecting, especially kind of reflecting on our mistakes or, or what was surprising to us, uh, what went well, what didn't go well. Uh, so those are examples of activities that are not just about getting the job done. And I think it's, it's important to think about how improvement requires activities that are different from just pure execution. And, and is there a, a sort of an optimal ratio, if you will, if, if, we're, if we are sort of segmenting and clearly delineating performance zone versus learning zone? You know, and, and you mm-hmm. mentioned chess players got worse if they just played more, 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 more games. 
Is, is there yeah. kind of a you know sixty forty or eighty twenty mm-hmm. kind of a balance or split that that often seems to be about the sweet spot? So if you look at domains where performance can be objectively measured and where people have one specific thing that they're trying to become really great at, like chess, ballet, uh, classical music, those types of things. If you look at those types of fields, the people who who become top world performers in those fields engage in deliberate practice anywhere between two and five hours per day, which is, so depending on the field. And, and that is a little surprising because one could think, well, the person who spends eight or 10 hours a day doing deliberate practice is going to become the best in the world. That's actually not the case. These people spend between two and five hours a day doing deliberate practice. And the reason, and usually they do it like in the morning when, when the brain has much more energy and they usually don't do it for more than about an hour at a time before taking a break and doing something else. And a couple of reasons for that. First, that when we're engaging in deliberate practice, trying to do something beyond what we're comfortable with, requiring full concentration, our brain is uh, getting tired. I mean, it, it requires a lot of concentration and then the brain needs to rest. Also, when we rest and we do something else, like we go play music or listen to music or go for a walk or do something else, our brain is working in the background, right? And it's making connections in the background while the mind is wondering or thinking about something else. Uh, also, while, we are, while we're doing other things or learning about other things, that fosters creativity. Then we start making connections between things that are usually not uh, connected. And that leads to improvements in performance as well. And also what, what we see is that these people who become top in the world also sleep more than other people. And first, because the brain is stressed, but also because uh, while we sleep, we are actually learning. Our, our, our neurons are making new connections. They're disconnecting things that shouldn't be connected together. They're removing toxins uh, from the brain. And so uh, sleep is, is also really important. So when we think back about, so these are people who like play violin for a living, you know, and they can afford to spend, you know, two to five hours a day doing deliberate practice in the workplace. You know, for most of us, we, we usually can't afford to do that. We have to produce, we have to get things done. We have a lot of things on our plate uh, and we need to spend most of our time in the performance zone. But for me, kind of the most important thing is, are we regularly spending time in the learning zone? Is that a habit that we regularly engage in? And, and so for me, especially kind of for, for people in the workplace, uh, the habit of doing it regularly is more important than kind of how much time uh, we spend on it. But there's a lot of, kind of great performers in business like Zuckerberg and Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and Oprah. They, they have the five-hour rule, which is that they spend you know, at least five hours a week in the learning zone, uh, deliberately learning something. And so that gives you a little bit of a, of a measure of you know, how much great performers in business spend time in the learning zone. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Well, Eduardo, tell me, anything else you really want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Uh, no, not in particular. Okay, sure. Well, then, can you start us off by sharing a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Sure. So, a favorite quote for me is, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In the space, there is the freedom to choose our response. In our response, lies our growth and our freedom. Uh, that is uh, a quote by Viktor Frankl, uh, who is a psychiatrist and also a Holocaust survivor. Thank you. And how about a, a favorite particular study or experiment? 
Uh, I think that the study I described about the fMRI functional MRI machine, brain scan machine, and how people in a growth or a fixed mindset attend to mistakes or not, that's a favorite study for, my, for me. All right. And how about a favorite book? Uh, the Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama. That was very, very impactful for me. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite tool, something that helps you be awesome at your job? I love Paul everywhere when I do kind of trainings or talks to engage people in, in reflection and in track with them. That's a great kind of all tool. Personally, I also love using kind of flashcard applications to help me remember and learn things that I want to, to remember and have in mind all the time. All right. And how about a favorite habit? My morning habit, the first thing I do every day is like sacred for me. I, have, I do several things when I wake up and they include uh, meditating, which I actually do upside down in an inversion table hanging from my ankles. And then, so I do kind of the same routine. And then when I get to the computer, I do uh, several things, planning my day and setting the priorities for the day and reminding myself of, for example, what I want to be working on uh, so that every morning before I get started, I have what I call a keystone habit, uh, which is a habit that helps other habits form. Uh, so, so I have a way to remind myself of what it is that I want to be working on and what new habits I want to be building. And that's, that's sacred for me. And throughout that whole period, I don't turn on my phone. I don't look at email. So I start my day by just internally generated thoughts and not by looking at the news or email or anything like that because then that can derail me. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate when you're sharing the stuff? Yeah, one that uh, people sometimes quote is uh, real confidence is about modeling ongoing learning. Uh, so sometimes we think of confidence as something that means that you know a lot of stuff and you're sure that you know. Uh, but I think that it takes a higher degree of confidence to model learning and to really not be sure that we know, to be open to what other people are thinking and saying and to consider the possibility that we might not be right. All right. And you have a preferred way if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? We have our website, mindsetworks.com, and you can contact us through our website, or I'm also on Twitter at ebrisenio 8 And do you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Sure. I, uh, I would encourage people who don't have a, a keystone habit to consider developing one. And again, a keystone habit is a habit that enables other habits to form. Uh, it could be as simple as setting up in your calendar a recurring reminder, a recurring appointment with yourself once a week, 15 minutes, to think about what it is that you're working to improve, how it's going, whether you want to uh, change anything in your approach. That can be an example. For me, is the example of what I do first thing in the morning. It could be when what you do when, when you get to work or when you get into, into your car. So that is something to think about. Beautiful. Well, Eduardo, thanks so much for, for taking this time and, and sharing the goods here. I wish you and Mindset Works tons of luck and success and, and helping young people learn and, and older people learn and, and all that you're doing. Thanks, Pete. Uh, I enjoyed the conversation. and Thank you for your work with How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Uh, it's so awesome to have a learning-oriented space that we can learn from lots of other people and from you as well. Uh, so thank you for what you do and uh, keep, it, keep, keep it coming. In reflecting on this interview with Eduardo and the, the background research I did on him, what really keeps coming back for me again and again is what he said in his TED Talk, you know, don't say I'm not good at that. Say, I'm not good at that yet. 
and and the yet makes all the difference because I guess what I love about that sentence is it's honest, it's self-aware, it's for real, it's humble, and it's also not a surrender, a resignation. Like I'm doomed to not be any good at this thing. No, no, you're not good at it yet. I find myself saying that more and more and it's kind of encouraging. It lets me think, hmm, is this something that I want to get good at? I have the possibility, the potential to do so. Is it worth the investment and the trade-offs and the opportunity costs? I'll think about that. I have that option available to me to improve, to be more handy or whatever I'm looking to do. So again, if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep, it's letters EP, 316. And I hope you'll push subscribe if you have not already. Wednesday's the 4th of July, so I have a little reflection there. And then Friday, we got BJ Fogg. He is a master, brilliant dude when it comes to behavior change and behavior science. He studies at Stanford. He has shared some of my favorite, favorite tidbits when it comes to forming habits and creating behaviors. So I hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.